So Jesus, ask that you would please help us to, in the words I'm going to say, the thoughts that we're going to think in these next few minutes, God, ask that you would please help us to know how we can follow you more. And pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as I've shared with you before in past sermons, any evidence that I am a Christian pretty much disappears whenever I drive. I mean, it's just a huge challenge in my spiritual life, especially when someone is driving slowly in the left-hand lane, which just drives me crazy. I hate that. And my wife always says, you know, just pass them on the right side of the lane, you know. And and I would say, no, no, it's the principle of the thing. They're not supposed to drive slowly in the left-hand lane. So I was really excited this summer when someone sent me a picture of a highway sign, which I really hope is real. Over the left-hand lane, it says... If there is someone behind you and no one in front of you, get out of this lane. (laughs) Love that. Get out of the way. Then over the right-hand lane, it says, stay in this lane unless you're going to pass. Love that. And then at the exit, it says, if you can't figure out why, then take this lane. (laughs) This picture, yeah, some of you are loving that sign, right? You're like, where is that? I wish they had it in the state of Oregon, especially. This picture just... (laughs) I see you've driven to California. This picture fills me with legalistic, self-righteous joy. And that's kind of what I want to talk about in the sermon today, the tension between legalism, on the one hand, they should not drive slowly in the left-hand lane, it's the rule, and then libertinism, on the other hand, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that's sort of what's at stake in the story that we read today, where Jesus is eating at a tax collector's house named Matthew. And what you got to understand is that back then, tax collectors, it was different than the IRS is today. They were far more unpopular. Imagine that. <laughs> tax collectors, the way they worked was they were in collaboration with the occupying Roman army, and they would, they would overcharge the, the, the Jews. They, 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 they jacked the taxes way up beyond what the Romans were charging and then pocketed the difference for themselves. So a better word for who they were is extortionist and traitors. That's who Jesus is having dinner with. In a culture where the highest form of social acceptance that you could show is to eat with someone. That's why, as the text goes on, it says that when the serious saw this, now the normal word there is Pharisees, but I'm using a translation from a scholar named Dale Bruner, and he uses serious people, which I just love, right? It just gets at it, right? The uptight, serious, driving properly in the left-hand lane religious, serious people, said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and bad people? Jesus says, because I did not come to invite good people, I came for bad people. And that answer just so irritated the religious folk of his day. Because that wasn't the rules. That's not how religion is supposed to work, right? It just, I mean, religious people have always been a problem for Jesus. So then they get into this controversy about should we fast, should we not fast? And so Jesus later on goes to say, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and people said he's a fanatic. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and people say, look at this greedy fellow, this drunkard. He's a friend of collaborators and immoral people. In other words, make up your mind, you Pharisees. Right? On the one hand, they accuse Jesus of being a hedonist because he parties with sinners. But then they turn around and accuse John the Baptist of being a fanatical legalist because of all of his eccentricities. And the the tension in these stories is between those two things. Legalism on the one hand, which is when we reduce life down to just a bunch of rules, right? In order to be right with God, there's a bunch of rules. You got to be a good person. In order to be a good person and be right with God, you know, you need to read your Bible and pray and fast and clean up your language and be nice to cats, right? Legalism, right? On the other hand, there's libertinism. 
you know what? Life's short. We got to just grab the pleasure. Do what feels right for you. If it's good for you, you just do that. And both of these are around us everywhere. everywhere. Right? Like certainly the stereotype of Christians, certainly the stereotype of uptight legalists, right? Sort of like a story someone sent me about two elderly women sitting in church reading the bulletin about how the pastor, had just ado- pastor and his wife had just adopted a baby. So one of the ladies says to the other, adoption. Now that's the only way a pastor should have a baby. Right? That's sort of our image, right? Uptight, prudy. This side is just getting that, so more coffee for this side. Right? Uptight, prudy kind of legalist, right? That's the image of Christians. But I don't think it's just Christians that are legalists. I mean, I think it's everywhere in our culture. I mean, even in, something, even in something as simple as when I'm at the store and they say, paper or plastic, right? And I freeze for a minute. I think, oh, oh, what am I supposed to do? What's better for the environment? What's the right one? Oh, oh. And then I remember that my wife put canvas bags in my car, and I'm supposed to use the canvas bags instead, right? But I left them in the car, so when I get back to the car, I put what I bought in the canvas bags and throw the store bags away, right? So that when I go home, my wife says, oh, look, you use the canvas bags. And she's sitting in the front row, so now she knows, right? Can never get, oh, get, get by with that one again, right? Now, the intent is good, save the environment, but it turns into this legalistic deal. Or just look at all the rules you see on p- playground signs, right? Do not climb, do not jump, do not spin, do not have any fun at all on this playground or someone might sue us. Then there's all the self-help books, diets, motivational speakers. Just follow these simple rules, all of them say, and, and you'll be richer or more successful or slimmer or whatever it is. And you know what all those legalisms produce? Four things. First, stress as we try to be good enough and measure up as a... A Christian or as a, a be successful enough in our culture or whatever it is. Stress, guilt for not measuring up. Third, phoniness, because we just try to look good on the outside and fool everyone, but inside, not transformed. I remember one time when my son was about five, my youngest daughter was about three, and my son was singing a song from Sunday school, and I got really excited because he doesn't always show a lot of interest in spiritual things, and this represented progress. But then a few minutes later, my daughter was crying, and she said, he hit me. So I asked him, why'd you hit her? And he said, she interrupted my Jesus song. (laughs) So that's what legalism does to us, right? We look kind of good on the outside, but inside, mm. And then one last thing about legalism is it's boring, because it's all about what you can't do, all about the rules, don't, 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 don't. Legalism could be defined as the sneaking suspicion that somewhere someone is having fun and it must be put to a stop. (laughs) Libertinism, however, on the other hand, it it actually isn't any better. Because if we just do what feels right, feels good, you know, it just leads to disaster. If we, for instance, spend all of our money on ourselves and hoard it, we're just going to get more anxious about money. And it hurts our culture because folks in need aren't getting helped. If we don't keep sex inside marriage, it breaks hearts and leaves scars. If we drink too much, we wreck our bodies and we can become addicted. When we try to just get our needs met in a marriage, it it breaks up the marriage and it it leaves scars and wrecks families. And the list could go on and on and on, you know, uh, 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 blaming others, judgmentalism, anger, you name it. Now, none of us think of ourselves as libertines, right? No one goes around going, hey, I'm a hedonist, right? No one does that. But basically, libertinism is just doing what feels right for you. And that is everywhere in our culture. If it feels good, just do it. It's got to be right. 
right? How, what was that song back in the 70s? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. Well, of course it could, right? <laughs> could do all kinds of damage. So where are you feeling the pressure of legalism? Ought, should, do, have to, have to, have to. Or where do you feel the temptation just to do what feels good and right for you? Because Jesus offers a third way, and it is a, it is a deeper, richer, better, bigger third way, and it brings joy. It brings joy. Because, you see, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not out to take away all your fun. It's the opposite. He wants us to thrive, but on the things that will really give us abundant life. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in a great quote. Some of you know this. It's just brilliant. It's not that our Lord finds our desires too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with ambition, drink, and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, it's not that God thinks that we're too hedonistic. It's that we're not hedonistic enough. We're going after temporary pleasures instead of lasting, sustaining ones. Or we get all legalistic and make life all about rules. But Jesus has a wonderful, refreshing, third, different way. And you see it in the opening lines of this story, where it says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man sitting at the tax collector's table, and Jesus was saying to him, Follow me. Notice what Jesus says to Matthew. Does he say, Hey, Matthew, here's some rules I'd like you to follow. Hey, Matthew, here are seven habits of highly effective people. Try it on, try it on, try it on, right? No, he says, follow me, not follow rules, not follow what feels right to you, follow me, and that's his third way. When we follow him, as opposed to ourselves or just rules, in relationship with him, he leads us to three really great places. First, we become new people. Matthew is transformed in this story. He stops being a tax collector, invites all his tax collectors buddies over to party with Jesus. He's completely changed, but not by rules. It was an experience of Jesus that changed him. Rules do not change us. Rules just make us want to run away, make us want to rebel. My wife and I have some friends who decided to send their nine-year-old son to etiquette camp along with his little sister, which I didn't even know there was such a thing as etiquette camp, but what a great idea, right? Teach kids etiquette. Well, I mean, I might send our kids there. It sounds good, right? But apparently not if you're a nine-year-old boy, especially with your little sister, right? So as his mom was dropping him off at etiquette camp, he said, man, this is going to be the second worst day of my life. I love that. It said he, you know, if he'd said it was going to be the worst day of his life, that just would have been hyperbole. But the second, he'd really thought this out, right? And there was one worst day in mind, right? So his mom said, well, what was the first worst day? And he said, when we had to watch the puberty film in school. That's what rules, rules do to us. They just make us want to run away. And this is what makes Jesus such a third-way, unique guy, different than every other religious leader. Every other religion is about rules. Every other one, and sometimes Christians try to make Christian, Christianity about rules, but it's not. Every other religion is about rules, have to, ought to, do, do this, do that. You've got to do all of these things to be a good person, get right with God, and avoid being contaminated by sin. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You cannot contaminate me with your sin. My holiness will cleanse you. My love will change you. Because his love gets at the root cause of our sin, which is we do not trust God. Let me give you an example. Let's say money's your issue. You're kind of greedy and stingy and just hang on to money all the time. Can't give any of it away. 
At the root cause of that is not believing that God really loves us and has our best interest in mind. But if you experience Jesus' love, not in your head, in your heart, it begins to change that because you begin to feel loved and realize if God loves me this much, loved me enough to die for me, well, isn't he also going to take care of my needs? And the money stuff begins to disappear. I got an email a while back from a teenage girl whose permission I have to share this story. And a couple of years ago, she started exchanging sexually explicit texts with, and, and photos with a bunch of different guys. It's, it's called sexting, which is a weird word, but it's, it's, it's going on everywhere these days. And her parents eventually found out because the latest guy, was called, who she called Joe, showed up for a visit one day. So in her email, she said, you know, I don't really need to go into detail of what Joe's potential was as a boyfriend. But my parents immediately stepped up, took away all my electronics. At first, I just promised myself... I'd wait till I could talk to Joe again. But one, then one day, my mom said to me, you know what? I want you to know something. I want you to know, this is what her mom said, I want you to know that you are too precious for God to let go of. He died for you. He saved you. He brought you out. He carried you. And he will resurrect your life if you let him. You are too precious to him to let go of. The girl went on to say, you know what? I can't explain what happened, but in that moment, my emotions began to switch from not being able to forgive myself to feeling loved, valued, and valuable. Then Jesus took my life, he washed it clean, and he gave it purpose. I still can't believe where I was and where I am today. It hasn't been easy, and some days I still have to fight temptation. I do know this, though. God has all of me, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Somehow what her mother said to her made her feel loved by God, valued, and valuable and it was that experience of God's love that changed her. Not rules, but it's as we experience the love of Jesus that we are transformed. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know a lot of Christians, and some of them are not nice people. They don't seem transformed. They're, they're not good people. They're not nice. Well, look at it this way. Think how much worse they'd be without Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, I would be a far worse driver if it wasn't for Jesus. And that's shocking, right? But there's been progress, right? I'm not who I was but I'm not yet who I will be, through Jesus. And the mark of a Christian is not perfection. The mark of a Christian is progress, which happens when we experience Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, it helps to come to worship, be reminded of his love. It, it helps to have others love you as Jesus loves you, warts and all. Helps to pray and listen for him to speak. But the best thing is just to ask for it. Jesus, help me to experience your love, not just in my head, but in my heart. I was talking to a man the other day who has some issues with pornography and drinking too much. And I recommended an exercise to him that I'd like to recommend to you to experience Jesus. And I said, I want you to imagine Jesus sitting next to you because he is. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to guide your imagination in these next few minutes. And under the Spirit's guidance, imagine what Jesus would say to you. Let's say on a night that you come home drunk, what would Jesus say? And he said, well, I think Jesus would say, I love you. And I said, yeah, what else? And he said, well, I think Jesus would say, this pain that you feel, I feel it too. And I said, what else? And he said, I think he'd say, I know these last few years have been really hard, and I know you don't want to be doing everything you're doing, deep in your heart. I just want you to know I've been here at the door knocking the whole time, and I'm, I'm going to stand here knocking until you let me in. And I said, you know what? I think Jesus would say all of those things, and I think he'd say one more thing. I think he'd say, I have so much more for you than this. I have such a bigger adventure for you than this. I have a different way. And when you're ready to try it, just let me know. I'll be right here. 
And this guy said, that makes me want to be a different man. And I said, that's the point. Relationship with Jesus, not rules, makes us new people. Second thing that happens when we follow Jesus, and it's related to the first, we get new desires. We begin to want to do what Jesus says to do. Not to follow rules, not to win approval, not to prove something, but because we know he loves us. And he wants to give us the kind of joy that C.S. Lewis is talking about in that quote. And when we get that, his commands no longer seem like rules, but more like directions from one of those you know, talking GPS systems, you know, directions for how to get to some place that we want to get. Let's say, for instance, you come to a relational crossroad. Jesus says, follow me at this crossroad, and I will give you directions to how to get to an abundant life. You come to that crossroads in your marriage, right? And Jesus says, follow me, and I will show you the way to have a great marriage. And some of those directions are in Scripture. You know, love each other the way Christ loves the church. Let your words be seasoned with gentleness. Some of those directions may come from a wise Christian friend. But suddenly they don't feel like rules anymore. They feel like directions to a place I want to go. And I'm motivated to get there because I know he loves me and I know he's leading me to abundant life. Let me give you an example. I know, for instance, that a good rule in marriage is that husbands and wives should share chores equally, household chores equally. Okay, I know that's a good rule. But in reality, okay, can you guess where this is going? In reality, I end up doing way more of the chores than my wife. (laughs) Rob her of her ability to serve, right? Mm -hmm. And I lie a lot too. See, the rule doesn't change me, but if I can see and understand the fruit that serving brings to our marriage, how our marriage is stronger if I serve, then I'm more motivated. When we follow Jesus and experience his love, we want to follow his commands because we know that there is fruit at the end. Maybe not immediately. Sometimes it takes years and years and years to see the fruit. And following Jesus is harder. It is costly, okay? But there is fruit. There is something bigger, richer, deeper, better. And when we understand that, we want to pursue him and follow his directions, even when they're hard. All right, following Jesus in relationship as opposed to rules leads us to be new people, leads us to new desires, and finally leads us to fulfillment rather than mere fun. See, God is not out to take away your joy. He wants you to have joy, but something that's deep and lasting, not just fun. And the problem with libertinism is it wrecks our lives. The problem with legalism is it's all about what you can't do, right? Don't, don't, don't. You've heard me say before, for too long, the Christian team cheer has been, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go, or girls who do, yay team, right? Not very inspiring. Here's the thing. Jesus did not become famous for what he didn't do, right? Nobody said, boy, that Jesus, look at all the stuff he doesn't do. There he is again, not doing something, right? That, and, and to be fair to Jesus, right, he was not crucified for being boring. That's not why they killed him. He was crucified for being too radical, He partied with tax collectors and sinners. He described heaven as a wedding feast, not as a trip to the dentist. And he values fun. It's just that he values fulfillment more. Take success. Jesus got nothing against success. He just says, you set the bar too low, guys. I've got something way better for you than that promotion. How about letting me use you over a lifetime to change others and change the world? Take money. Again, Jesus got nothing against money. And he just says, you know, pursuing that, though, bar's too low. It's way more rewarding to give that away for eternal purposes and to help people. At every point we say that looks fun, Jesus says, yeah, but I got fulfillment, and fulfillment is better. In my former church, there was a high school student who'd been raised in the church, but then decided that following Jesus wasn't for him. Instead, he started drinking and robbing houses just for the fun of it. 
Well, eventually, he got arrested. And when he got arrested, he was very embarrassed by that because that's not the sort of thing that's supposed to happen to kids in Palo Alto, right? Kids in Palo Alto aren't supposed to get arrested. Palo Alto, kids are supposed to get 4.5 GPAs and go on to schools like Harvard and Stanford and Yale and all of that. So he was really embarrassed. But the youth pastor of my former church, his Christian friends, his dad, they all stepped up. He had to spend one night in jail, and they went to the jail, spent the whole night with him in that jail, talked to him, played cards with him. They didn't condone what he'd done, but they didn't condemn him either. Well, a few months after that, his friends invited him to go to a Christian camp with the youth group. So he went, this guy went, but he also snuck in a bunch of alcohol and a bunch of uh, marijuana, and he got caught. And he was just sure he was going to get sent home and be in big trouble. Again, the youth pastor was awesome. He said, no, I'm not going to send you home. Here's what we're going to do, though. I want you to call your dad, tell him what happened. And then after you're done with that, I want to get your friends around you. And let's tonight, let's sit down with your friends, and let's talk about how God might have a bigger adventure for you than getting drunk and robbing houses. And that's what they did. Well, the rest of the camp was spent doing things like rock climbing, hikes, all kinds of cool stuff. And this guy began to feel truly accepted by these Christian friends. And he was enough so that he was able to get honest about what was really going on inside of him, which was he felt all of this pressure to perform and succeed, legalism, right? Got to get a 4.5 GPA, you got to get into Harvard or Stanford or Yale or something like that. That's what you got to do. Legalism felt all of this pressure to perform and succeed in school. But with these friends, he didn't feel that pressure. He felt accepted for who he was, not for his GPA. They didn't even know his GPA. And gradually that began to change him. Over the next year, he stopped drinking, stopped the robbing houses, eventually became a follower of Christ, graduated, went on, went to college, but not, you know, just a normal college, not Ivy League or Ivy League wannabe like Stanford, right? Just normal college. Then after college, he got a job, and one of the things he now does is he volunteers to mentor at-risk youth. Takes them out into the wilderness, rock climbing, whitewater rafting, that sort of thing. Uses those activities to teach things like teamwork and perseverance and courage and integrity and how to be a man. And now there's all these kids whose lives have been turned around through his mentoring. Kids that might have ended up on the streets, now in great places, walking with Jesus, great marriages, right, great dads. He's changed a lot of lives, which he finds way more thrilling than getting drunk and robbing houses. He was transformed, but not through rules, certainly not through just doing what felt good, but through an experience of Jesus his friends gave him. He became a new person, got new desires, and found fulfillment rather than just fun. So where are you feeling the weight of legalism? Ought, should, do, perform, have to, must. Or where are you tempted to just do what feels good? Instead, will you draw closer to Jesus in prayer, in worship, Maybe by doing that exercise, I recommended let Jesus guide your imagination and hear what he says to you. And then who can you give an experience of Jesus to so that they can break out of either legalism or libertinism and know that only the joy that Jesus can give? Let me close with this. One of the students I had when I did college ministry was Ken Starr's daughter. And this was during the Clinton-Monica Lewinsky thing when Ken Starr was the prosecutor. And as a result, he had a lot of death threats, a lot of enemies, stuff like that. So his daughter, who was a freshman at the time, had to be escorted by federal marshals everywhere she went. 
Well, one night we were having dinner for the freshmen at our house, and she was going to be part of that. So an hour or two hours prior to this dinner, these federal marshals came to our house to inspect it, right? I mean, and they inspected everything, inside, outside, under the couch, right, to make sure that it was all safe, right? And, I mean, and when they came in, they had their game faces on. I mean, you know, the suits, the earpieces, the sunglasses, the guns. I mean, you know, they were the law. You know, legalism incarnate, very intimidating, sort of stern federal marshals. Well, after dinner, we had this time of worship and singing and prayer. And as we did, I was looking at these marshals and their faces just got less and less tense as we were singing and praying. I even saw one of them singing the songs, right? It was like he was actually experiencing something of the spirit of Jesus in the room. Well, afterwards, after all that was over, we ended up playing charades. And by this time, the marshals were so into it that they played charades with us. Okay, I don't think that they were supposed to do that, but there they were, right? Sounds like and three syllables and all of that, right? And I remember one trying to act out being Peter Rabbit, and he was hopping all over our living room, right? Earpiece, sunglasses, gun, and all of that, right? Christina was watching, and she looked at me, and she goes, you don't see that every day, do you? I mean, you have not lived until you have had a federal marshal hopping around your living room like a rabbit. That's what Jesus can do. He can turn you from a legalistic marshal to joyfully celebrating when we draw close to him and experience him. So this week, will you set aside some time? How can you follow him? Not rules, not what feels good. Follow him and know the joy that only he can give you. So Jesus asked that you would help us to do that. We ask that you would be very real to us this week. Help us to draw close to you, experience you, so that we can be transformed by you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.